This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, Adam and John back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Today, we're taking a little detour from bow hunting. I'm sure we'll talk a little bow hunting uh, somewhere throughout here, but we're going to talk with Nick Otto from the Huntivore podcast. Um, how you doing tonight, Nick? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, hunkering down. We got some major winds going on here in the state of Michigan. It's blowing. For sure. Trees down everywhere around here so why i wanted to talk to you you know we talked a little bit um uh, the last episode when we talked to zach about the uh his favorite wild game recipe uh for for cooking wild turkey and we've talked a little bit about the different things that we're doing as far as trying to cook up you know the venison that you know i've you know between our group we killed you know five deer i think this year and you know, so we've got venison at our disposal, but the way that we always cook it is kind of like the way that we always cook it. And uh, I've been trying to step out of that box and 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 kind of look at some of these um, different recipes, different preparations, and um, you automatically come to mind. So if anybody out there isn't familiar with uh, your podcast or kind of what you're doing, um, give us a little background um, on you know what your podcast is, and then we'll kind of go into like what brought you to that sounds good uh yeah started the huntivore podcast um earlier this summer kind of a brainchild between me and uh um, my buddy dustin um you know we really got inspired with uh just utilizing wild game and celebrating our hunter and angler lifestyle um there's those favorite recipes that are out there that people go to every time, but we want to do more than just those recipes. Um, 
my buddy also Dustin also likes to refer to me as his uh, closet hipster um, <laughs> because now it's it's the cool thing to try and uh, use wild game um, in in these these different ways. So I've uh, I've really took to that and took locavore to the next level. Uh, locavore is someone who gets their food within like you know 20 miles or 50 miles of their homestead. Uh, there's several reasons why folks would would want to do that, whether it's to save fuel, whether it's to get the highest quality, the freshest that's near them. Um, and we take that one step further, and we're now acquiring our food. So that's where we get our huntivore from, is that we are acquiring our own food for sustenance. And so another big thing for Nick is he was just recently with the, the huntivore podcast has been taken up and become part of the sportsman's nation. Um, so if you're following along with the sportsman's nation, uh, series of podcasts, um, Nick's going to be a, a staple on there and his podcast is a, a, a weekly podcast that'll keep continuing to come out. Um, you know, hopefully it'll take them to the next level here. Um, but th- what they're doing over there is, is, is great stuff. So what, what is your background with the culinary arts, and the the cooking side of of hunting um how how does one get into that such a this rabbit hole that you've you've fallen into yeah um well i've got zero professional culinary (laughs) (laughs) um but i my my parents love to cook especially my mom um living on a farm we did a lot of home-cooked meals you needed stuff to get you through the whole day like breakfast was important um and so we used a lot from our farm as well. I mean, we're a poultry farm, specifically turkey. Uh, and so she would prepare turkey a lot of different ways. Um, you know, it'd be turkey sausage in the, in the morning. Uh, it'd be turkey eggs along with, with it for breakfast. And then even at, at night, you would get different cuts. You would get either dark meat, white meat, or we'd have just different setups from that, like a a goulash. She was awesome at making a goulash uh, with with ground turkey. And from that, just watching her in the kitchen, it inspired me to get kind of into into cooking a little bit. And I enjoyed the outdoors. Um, But it wasn't until later in life when I actually started my family. Um, It was at 2010, I decided, you know what, I'm going to pick this up. I... I was into athletics. I was into um, more of like the hiking side of the outdoors world. And it wasn't until, yeah, finally when we when I was married and we were, I think, expecting our first child at that point, it was like, well, I'm going to try out this hunting. I want to bring in some some good quality food to our, to our family. And I downed a deer that year, and I, I was immediately overwhelmed with all the work that was that went into butchering this animal. Uh, we did a butcher job. I mean, we butchered it in the worst, the worst use of that word. It was a hack fest at best, uh, usable state. I mean, we had backstrap and then the rest was already just pieces of small, um, as my, my buddies called giblets that we were (laughs) even trying to make something out of. And I was a little bit ashamed of that. I was like, this is not a great start to utilizing this animal and that's where my 
my real rabbit hole began with like, all right, I need to learn how to butcher this animal. I need to learn the ins and outs and I want to know how do you best utilize this. Um, since then, it's just been, I mean, we're, we're approaching almost a decade. It's been, how can I use that, that cut a little different or man, that's really neat that they did with beef. Can I apply that into venison and just really being creative and outside the box? Um, I mean, you got to use the science to it. There is a technique, but at the same time, there's an art that lets you play with food, that lets you explore these different tastes, and that got me really excited. Um, So I've really been on, like, this student's journey since then to, like, find people who know what they're doing and absorb what what they're putting out, and then not just copy it, but adapt it to what my tastes are you know i'm i see somebody out and out west that's doing something with mule deer i want to apply that to whitetail and they might use a lot of sage out there because that's what the critters running around in i I might want to change that up and use more juniper berry because we got more cedars here in michigan um that the deer are eating so it's a play on flavors and it's more of a creativity thing that gets me just jived up to try and find a way to make these dishes. So let's just take a step back here real quick. Cause I guess I didn't realize that you were relatively new to hunting. So as I mean, the, the food aspect is, uh, you know, what a lot of um, larger platforms are using to kind of bring in new hunters or kind of um, introduce people into um, the fact that hunting is okay or, or, that, you know, it's a way to get this, you know, everybody's on this organic clean eating type, type movement. But, um, I guess I would assume, I mean, at least for all the people that I know and around here, it's like, if you lived on a farm, like you grew up with a shotgun riding in a tractor with you and and you were, that that was part of the, part of your everyday life. So that, that hunting, did it, did it start with, um, just with whitetail hunting or was it, I mean, for John and I, I think it was small game all the way up. Yeah. When we started out with squirrels and rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, I started in the meat industry side of it. We, we run and operate, um, uh, a poultry farm, a turkey farm. And we, we raise the birds and then, uh, we actually have our own processing facility on site. Uh, so my whole focus and well, my, I shouldn't say my, my father's focus and my family's focus was on agriculture. Uh, you know, we had the 22s and we had the shotguns for, for environment control. Um, and we, you know, like, just like any kid, I loved shooting, shooting guns. Um, and I was around that, but like whitetail hunting was big in our area. And whitetail hunting falls right around November. I mean, archery in October, but we are ramping up for Thanksgiving at that time. So there was no, there was no leeway to jump out into the deer woods as as a younger child, because that wasn't my influence. My influence was on the agriculture. From that, I got an education on taking apart an animal, seeing how the inside, you know, 
when I inviscerate a bird, I can do it almost to my eyes close. I can, you know, reach in, get the whole thing, pull it out. I'm making quick cuts. Seam butchery is not a, a foreign thing to me. So I can take apart uh, a poultry animal relatively quickly just because of the training that I had there. When I jumped into the woods, um, finally just having that freedom that I wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm in my own household. I'm now choosing my own way. And I, I thought hunting is something that I really wanted to get into. Um, I was able to take a little bit of that agricultural food production skill that I had had growing up and apply that in. And so that was a, you know, I kind of had a, a little bit of a guide, at least to get started there on the hunting side of it. I, I had to start from square square one, and I'm asking my buddies questions on, so put my stand here? Yes. You're going to put your stand right here, Nick, and that is your stand. It probably was not the best placement, but they let me sit there anyway. <laughs> and so as being a, a new-onset hunter, um, it's funny. We were just at the Ranella um, Meet Eater Live podcast, um, and I was talking to another gentleman who was just – in the last four or five years picked up hunting from, you know, his family or his wife's family had hunted. He just kind of picked it up and he's coming at it from a much more different perspective. Um, and is like almost like all in as far as like analyzing, trying to learn as much as possible. Um, where I think if you're a, a kid and you're young, impressionable, you're just doing whatever you see being done, whether it's the, the right way or the wrong way. Um, do you think from your perspective, as you entered into it, you were just taking cues from your buddies and you were just happy to be out there like a 10 year old say, or do you think that you, it was more analytical um, because it seems like the way that you've implemented and gone down this road with cooking, it's definitely more analytical. Do you think the hunting side is, is similar? I do because when I started out, I wanted, it was all on we got to make this work. We got to make this, I, I don't want to say profitable, but we got, we got to be successful. And I was ranging success as getting an animal from that and being like, just wanting to get an experience with an animal and copy that. I then began to find the nuances around that, that it didn't become necessarily an execution of a plan that it then transformed into an enjoyable experience that it wasn't that I had a, had a mission soul to get that particular critter, but now I'm out there able to enjoy the outdoors. Um, I, I enjoyed the outdoors, uh, recreationally. And so it's been nice to, to mix the two, but stepping in and, yeah, I guess I was playing catch up and I, I put that pressure on myself to try and learn as much as I could. And after I gained a few times out in the woods, you're, you're going to get your misses. And when I was able to down my first deer, it was like, that was a huge weight off my back. It was just a big sigh of relief that I can do this, that I do have the ability to do it. And then it's become a, a hobby now that I can continue to to enhance and work on, but at the same time, enjoy. Um, and I had that opportunity now as I'm raising my own kids that 
you know, they're going to be looking at me with those young eyes and they're going to want to mimic what I'm doing. So I want to make sure that I'm, I'm doing the right thing. You know, we're following the guidelines set for us, but I also want to, you know, give them some, these are some important things you want to be able to do. But at the, you know, big cornerstone of this too, is it's got to be enjoyable. A real, uh, I guess, coming at it from the, the perspective of the, the meat side. So the food, the preparation side, you see it with, um, Ranella on the meat eater where he says, you know, he, he likes to rifle hunt because of the efficiency, right? Like he doesn't like to go home empty handed or, you know, he affords a lot of opportunities. Um, and the, I think on our podcast, uh, that we did at the Total Archery Challenge last year with uh, Jason Meekoff from the Michigan Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. You know, we're we're a bow hunting centric podcast. I mean, that's that's our passion. Um, but talking to him, he said, you know, I'm going to use whatever means is legal, and I'm going to shoot whatever presents the opportunity and is legal because I like venison. So as a late onset hunter. And the climate now being success is measured in inches or age class. And, you know, there's this big stigma on social media of like, you know, we talked about it in one of our podcasts and you and I had had messaged back and forth. It's like, you know, you shoot a deer that you're happy with and you're fully content with, but it's not up to the, the standard of social media. It's not it's not cool if you didn't shoot a 140. So uh, how does that enter into the mind of a new hunter that's trying to provide dishes for his family and, 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 and from that perspective? It's a, man, it's a slippery slope. Cause you know, you, you want to get better and how do I gauge how I'm getting better? Well, it, it must be that I'm going to get closer to bigger deer. So I'm going to get a bigger deer next year because I'm going to put extra work in and I'm going to wait for this monster animal to come walking through. But at the same time, it's like, then the focus is all off on what you were out there for the first place. I am human and I do desire to do the best that I can do. And, you know, I get two deer that walk out at the same time and one's got a huge set of antlers. Well, you've, darn well i'm looking at that one to to take the arrow or take the bullet um but at the end of the day antlers don't you can't eat antlers you know they can stir the pot but that's it so i'm i'm kind of with meat in that now um where i'm comfortable enough in my own being as a hunter i know my identity i know what i'm out here to do that the, the inches and the antlers, they're great, but they're not the be-all, end-all. And there's going to be a – I think there's going to be a tipping point. There has to be that the cool factor of coming in with a huge set of antlers, that that's all you're toting around, I, it's not going to – it's not consistent. You're, you're going to have your ups and your down years. But now – after I've matured, even in this short amount of time as a hunter, you know, you first come in, that's what he wanted. I wanted big antlers. I wanted to do that. But then I became comfortable with my, my reasons for being out there. I'm out there for a larger, what I 
what I think to be a grander purpose. And that is to provide meals. That is to share the venison diplomacy with, with friends and family. Um, and those who are not a part of the hunting fraternity, I want to be able to share that. And so my message is allowing me to make sure that I shoot a legal animal that comes out in front of me. Uh, this opportunity that I've now been able to share is extending outside of whitetails. And I'm now becoming a generalist that this is my new morph that with through Hunnivore, I'm now pursuing fish. I'm pursuing small game and then presenting that. So it's not just a one, one critter menu anymore. It's now expanded out to the whole Michigan ecosystem at my disposal. Well, if you want to talk about cool, I, I'll, I'll put it in terms of, of kind of where this conversation, you, you know, it has gone uh, already, but 120 inch deer that ends up as just burger <laughs> or, <laughs> or a, a year and a half old buck that turns into venison lollipops and asabuco and all of these different preparations, um, I would say that I'm more impressed with the latter um, <laughs> because you're always going to have that story that whatever, but the ability to take that animal and, and make it into all these preparations and, and, and do that. Um, so let's kind of get into that. Like for someone that's maybe on the, the, the jerky steak and uh, backstrap train, what are some of your favorite ways to prepare venison or uh, some good, I, w I don't want to say advanced, but maybe maybe things that are kind of outside of the box that aren't that difficult if you really break it down for, for that new hunter or for the, the person who decides that they want to they do this on their own? Yeah. Um, I got three that I'm thinking right offhand. Um, and they're going to be easy in the fact that your knife work is not going to necessarily be intricate. You don't have to spend a lot of time doing a lot of cuts on um, these three dishes. And, you know, with just a little bit of equipment, like real cheap, you're not having to buy fancy stuff to do these. You can do these um, pretty much with the stuff that you got at home. Um, the first off would be, uh, saving your shanks. Don't grind them up. Don't, uh, bone them out. Leave the bone in. Don't grind them up. Um, I'm not going to get into Asobuco yet because <laughs> we, we can go down that, that train here. That's a good story too. We can talk about for both um, of us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't use a hatchet. <laughs> <laughs> Don't use a hatchet. <laughs> but leave that shank whole and, um, you can then slow cook that shank. Uh, you can go pot roast style, or you can go even a little bit further and um, cook it a little bit longer in a in a slow cooker, just a regular crock pot. Um, bringing up some broth on there with some whatever seasonings that you like, um, and you can go pot roast style, where then you just add your vegetables and, and at the end, and it's the flavors will develop. Um, those muscles that are held together on that shank are going to begin to loosen up. And uh, that connective tissue is going to turn into gelatin. And what you end up getting is this velvety, 
rich hot roast that you can just slurp up almost. You just want bite after bite with that. With that same cut, you take it a little further and you can then shred it and have shredded tacos and really spice that up with whatever taco seasoning you end up. But I find, man, a venison taco is just awesome because there's not a ton of not a ton of grease that's holding you back from uh you know, you're not feeling heavy down by grease or having just that that fatty mouth or fatty mouth feel, but you're getting this just um, intense flavor of meat, and you're getting more flavors that are, I guess, not apparent in beef. I would say as it's a little bit more, um, it's got a little bit more nuance to it. Um, Second cut is the backstrap. That's everybody's favorite. And I've, I'm taking a leap of faith on this one. I'm going to be bold when I say it, that if you're, if you're butterflying your backstraps, you might be doing the wrong thing. You might want to keep them as longer whole pieces, roast size. And the reason I want you to do that is because then I'm going to have you do what's called a reverse sear. And a reverse sear is where I'm essentially putting it in the oven and I'm getting that meat to the internal temperature that I want my steak to be. Um, I know for rare and medium rare, it's right around that 120 degrees. You can find these charts online as far as like doneness um, that you want, but you use a probe thermometer, you can get them at you know, Meyer Costco, or yeah, I think they even got it, um, hardware stores, but it just, it's a probe that you stick in. Thermal pen's a good one to do. As soon as you get to 120, if you're going for a medium rare, you pull it out of the oven and let it rest. The last thing you do is you sear that sucker on a ripping hot cast iron pan. When you serve that up, you've done away with the, the bullseye effect where you've got like, well done and then you've got a little less done and then you have your sweet spot of medium rare you've expanded out that medium rare by doing this reverse sear because all you did was literally 30 seconds on the hot pan and then you can serve that up uh just this beautiful pink red venison backstrap the dish that i would then take from that would be making like a a pan sauce, you could go just as quick and simple as throwing in a little extra stock in that pan that's still hot, a little bit of cream, add some pepper and cayenne to it, and you have like a, a pepper sauce there. Um, I know there's uh, the steak Diane is also a great one to do, and I believe that uses a little bit of uh, mustard, tomato paste, uh, heavy whipping cream, salt, pepper, and I think there's some brandy in that as well. And you mix that into a pan sauce, and then you end up incorporating your uh, backstrap back into that sauce, ladle it over, and, yeah, that's a real treat right there. Very simple. Doesn't take a lot of um, intricate technique, but at the same time, it's a great beginner dish to, like, present to people to be like, look how cool this can be. 
Man, you're making me hungry right now. <laughs> well, and, and, and what I will say is, so one of the things that I've, like I said, I, and I've talked with you about this and I've mentioned it on the podcast before, I think is that, you know, Frank is the one that does a lot of the butchering and he deep fries everything in, uh, you know, deep fried, you know, batter, pan fry real quick, pull it out. And that's the way that venison's done. That's, and you know, he's said that's the way that his, you know, his wife would eat it, that the family would eat it, and so it was just like the next step past the spaghetti and tacos, right? But yeah, but that's the way that he processes deer. It's not whole muscle groups, and so I did that. I tried the reverse sear um, this past week um, with those pre-cut up steaks. And it, it turned out just fine. I mean, as long as I kept the internal temperature right at 120, and then I did 45 seconds on each side, um, in a 600 degree skillet and, uh, it turned out great. And one thing that I liked about that was like, a my daughter was just demanding more. So it was like, okay, that was, <laughs> that that's a win. Right. I but, tell you, you know, did any award that is given doesn't mean anything that doesn't hold a candle to when yeah your toddler or your daughter goes and says hey i want seconds like holy smokes you are king of the world (laughs) to this day my my oldest daughter is 25 and 25 year old daughter 21 year old daughter 17 year old daughter and then my son's 15 all of them like their if you ask them their favorite is dad's venison like and it's i just you know i just do a quick, you know, pan seared, you know, back strap or whatever. I never got fancy when we were growing up, but that was, I mean, their favorite to this day. Like, you know, I'd have them up for a birthday dinner. What do you want? Well, venison, you know, if I have it, shit, you know, but, but yeah, that's all. They, you know, kids growing up and especially now with the, the way, like you're talking about the new cooking styles are not, I mean, they're not necessarily new, but new to us. You know, it's just going to bring more people into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so one of the things I liked about that though is I cooked up a ton of it, and I I did meal prep, and so for the whole week, I cut it up into those little slices. And with it being instead of having that, like you said, that bullseye effect, it was all the same way. So even reheating it, it didn't turn it just dry and and terrible immediately like it was I, I could still eat it for the whole week and it was tremendous so that that was a, a i don't know it was i guess i patted myself on the back because it was like i ate it all week and i didn't get sick of it it wasn't terrible and i you know yeah <laughs> especially after that reheat you know you get a steak from a steakhouse that you know it's just i mean i wouldn't even, even say sear i want to say charred on the outside and man, that's it's just bitter and chewy, and you know, after a, it's almost like you don't want to take the steak home because you can't reheat it the right way. But then when you get like a home run, like you said, with your reverse sear at that point, you've got such a wide range of the sweet spot. Um, it makes that reheat that you're able to enjoy it uh, through several lunches. So, hey, good on you, Adam. That's great. Yeah. I mean, we really stepped out of the box. Frank's son, Chris, he um, he's really into cast iron cooking and 
actually he's getting into like the history of cast iron and so he's got a dutch oven and he's got some pans from the 30s and some you know some of some of the newer ones and he's talking to me about the nuances of seasoning this kind versus that kind and, and whatever so um he was he's he's a student of Renella's, i guess and uh he was like you know they talk about doing the ribs doing the ribs and um so we cooked up some ribs and i thought they were going to be terrible um and i and now i feel guilty because we've wasted so many ribs <laughs> uh, i got here late that throughout day. the years how many deer ribs <laughs> have you just tossed aside right. <laughs> right or stripped out and threw in the burger pot you know yeah but yeah I, I got here late that night after they cooked the ribs, and they were so good. Oh, man, you should have had some ribs. I'm like, where are they at? Oh, they're gone. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and so what we did with those, and we did them on the same day as the, the asabuco, but we uh, we took those ribs and we put them in a, a crock pot with um, just some, uh, I think some chicken stock. It was either chicken or beef stock. We seasoned them all up, put them in there for like four hours. And if you've ever, like smelled venison cooking a really gamey meat like that's what it was i was so like these are going to be horrible there's no way that these are <laughs> going to be edible like i don't and, and he had done some before they did them in, in the smoker they crock put them in the crock pot then put them in the smoker then grill them um and so we did these for like four or five hours and then i threw them on the grill like three minutes aside with a heavy slathering of, of barbecue sauce. And they were better than any pork rib that I've ever had. I mean, in my, my brother is um, a big guy and he's pretty skeptical and he was watching us cook this whole thing. And he's like, there's no way. And then it was like him and Chris were, were there just elbows deep. They were just eating them right out of the pan. Like that, they didn't even have a, a, a plate. And that's why John didn't get any, but <laughs> I, 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 I feel really guilty for getting rid of all those ribs or, or, or doing that. Um, and then we made the asabuco and we made the mistake of, of we thawed our shanks out and then we tried to cut them with the sawzall <laughs> and no one could hold it. <laughs> Let me put this in the bench vice. Yeah, and so, <laughs> so we decided that that was a bad idea. And so then we were like, well, I don't know what to do. We hadn't, spoken with you to say well if you can't cut them up just put them in the crock pot and make some tacos out of them or something so we're like what are we going to do with these shanks so like john said i said well we'll just cut them with a hatchet if you cut them with a hatchet it's very effective <laughs> um however uh, it leaves some pretty sharp bone chips uh here and there so if you're serving it to kids or <laughs> you uh, might want to you might might double check those. Right. right. Might well, you're little. in the shop anyway. You got the sawzall and you got the hatchet. Just get the file out and just round <laughs> over each of those edges. Get out the Dremel tools. <laughs> Polish it off. <laughs> yeah, when I got when he's like, Well the ribs are gone, but there's some asabuco, but you gotta look out for there's some there's some bone shards in there. I'm like, ah yeah, I'll 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 try it next time. Thanks. <laughs> but I also did. I butterflied a backstrap. I kept one whole, and uh, I butterflied it, and I filled it with uh, Parmesan cheese, some mozzarella, and then some stuffing, and I seasoned it up real well. And then I baked that, and that was well out of the box for what we normally do here. 
And uh, that was good. That was good, too. Yeah, I didn't get any of that either. (laughs) (laughs) So just for the just for the sake of the audience, uh, let's let's define Asobuco. It's it's made with the shank and you're cutting it um, laterally on these bones. You're creating these discs. Um, I believe it's going to be a horrible translation. But I'm sure that um, asobuco, I think it's like hole in the bone. Something hole and bone is what it's translated in, into English anyway. And the the key of that is you're taking, again, that piece of muscle that has a lot of connective tissue. It really works hard. Um, and what you're doing is opening up that bone so that marrow is going to be able to leach out the the, I would say the good fat or the, the edible fat that's in there and those edible flavors. And then at the same time becoming uh, very soft, very rich, uh, velvety, same process that we were going with on the um, pot roast style or the tacos. But now we're just cutting them up into rounds. That That's what you guys were doing, right? Yeah. And, first of all and that's why i love talking to other podcast hosts because they're like well let's let's back this up and we'll we'll, we'll kind of <laughs> Sorry, explain I didn't mean to just jump in there and <laughs> no, no i do the exact same thing when i'm on other podcasts so I, and i i love that um i, I love that but it, it's a pretty um that's exactly what we did and asabuco you i mean you can go through the the full preparation of it but i mean for us it was like super advanced because it's like well i guess go through the process of of, of cooking asabuco because it's not throw it in the crock pot and forget about it. You know, there's a, there's multiple steps. There is multiple steps and there's even multiple styles. Um, the recipe that I think has been made famous is yeah, those, those meat eater guys um, where it's, it's leaning towards the side of Italian um, where you're getting, you got to build up a, we use a fancy term, mirepoix. You're using a bunch of aromatic vegetables. You get your carrots, your celery, your onions, and you're starting to soften those up. You want to create that because that's where a lot of uh, additional flavor is going to come from. And so with the build of this, you're going to then transfer a, that um, circle of, Asobuco, you're going to sear sear that all the way around. You're going to drop that down into this mirepoix, this um, basically this flavor bomb that's going to happen. And with some stock, and what you want is you want time and these flavors to meld together. Uh, you take all the elements, and if you just dump them in a big pot and let it go, it it's not going to develop right. You got to it's going to be building of layers. It's step by step. Uh, you know, you don't want to just throw them all in cause then it's just going to boil and that's not going to be what you want to do. So there's this build up as you go along and you're checking that meat for the desired tenderness. Some people like it a little looser. Some people like it a little tighter depending on where that's at. Um, but yeah, it's those, it's the building of flavors and it's the adding of time that's going to mix that together. So as much as you want to just set it and forget it, and like every infomercial is going to tell you, 
you kind of got to babysit something like that. Yeah. And that was well outside of our, our norm. And we were doing this giant meal between the ribs, the, the baking of the tenderloin and then this, and then it went into the hatchet debacle and it was, you know, threw our timeline all off. So if you would have called me, I could have brought my bandsaw over. I got a small bench bandsaw. That would have made real quick work. That'd be perfect. Actually, I could have used that the other day. My, my mess up on Asobuco is I tried to beat the system. I thought I'd just saw them up while they're frozen. So I've got my, you know, my meat bone saw there. And I thought, well, I'll just run that through the meat. They'll be all set. And the, the friction that I was getting off this as I'm pushing it through the, the frozen meat is just creating this like pink goo that's coming off the backside of the saw. And I was like, this is such a problem. <laughs> and I, then I switched to the knife. Like, okay, I'll score the meat and then go back with it. And I couldn't get the blade to go through. So I ended up, or yeah, I couldn't get the blade of my knife to go through. So I had to go back to the hacksaw. I tell you, I think my right arm is probably a quarter inch thicker than my left because <laughs> I spent a long time hacking away or sawing away at that bone. So frozen doesn't work for you either. You can't keep it frozen. <laughs> it's probably the Marine in me. And I was just like, well, there's a, here's a faster way. Brute force. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to use a hatchet. But, you know, you live and you learn. Exactly. So besides that, what are some of the other things that we talk about? Okay, so we went from the kind of simpler, easier to use dishes now to like an asabuco that has many steps. Um, what are some of the more advanced dishes? I mean, you did some a pretty awesome preparation with the um with the ribs uh and making those lollipops um can you kind of go through like that process and like maybe some of the other things that either is like with a overlooked cut of meat or something that where maybe you wouldn't use are, are you using any entrails or organ meat anything like that just yet also like when you're talking to lollipops now you're getting into you're gonna think ahead when you go to butcher this this animal you you know kind of kind of go through that too like what your what your thought process is when you're getting ready to butcher deer or whatever yeah john you hit the nail right on the head um this this whole process starts the moment you approach the deer that you've downed um when i get to you know i put my deer down crash i go get it i've now field dressed it i'm now already thinking what am I going to do with these pieces? Um, granted, at that point, it's a little bit more situational. Um, if you want to use some of that fifth quarter, that gut that you're pulling out, you're going to have to think ahead on, do I have a way to get that out and get that cold quickly? Um, is this something that I want to have to have frozen so that I can have for later preparation? Or are we going to do liver and onions as soon as we get back? Uh, to camp or wherever you're at. So there's got to be a, a thought process and a quick move, especially on like the gut side of it. Um, working on that gut side of it, I always try to save the heart. Even if I've end up plugging it with the, the arrow, I'm going to take it because there's a lot. You can just take your, um, 
your blood meat and cut that right out. Um, but I'll try to take it. Uh, if it's with a shotgun, it's probably not going to be much left of that at that point. So you just have to move on. Um, but from there, I, I've taken call fat and I've got some good plans for that. And what call fat is, is the lacy, um, spider web looking fat that actually surrounds the innards. That's what kind of holds, uh, the gut together while the animal's moving around. It can, it holds it in place, gives it a little bit of shock value, and it's not a heavy work. It's, it's not heavy work at all. It's merely holding everything together. So you can, as you open up your deer, if you haven't been too uh, too wicked with your blade, you can actually pull that lacy fat out, and that's a great item to use in like wrapping a meatball, a Swedish style meatball or using it to wrap um, a meatloaf, anything that you want to then cover or be able to like almost self-based. This is a great fat to then wrap around cuts. When I get an animal, then gutted out pieces from that hung up, I can let the deer hang for, again, situational. This year, when I got my deer, it was in November, and I had snow on the ground. I had 30-degree temperatures, so I could push that hang for a little while. I could really think about what what is it that I want from this animal? What kind of cuts do I want to want to make? Um, as much as there's a bit of pressure on you get one shot at cutting up that animal, you, you can't screw it up, I guess. There's, there's always a way to redeem yourself on a, a miscut you can you can find a different way to use it i mean with the end result being ground that's that's going to be the end result and you'll hopefully get another deer again either that year or another time to to try again um but you you then begin to take this animal apart into what are referred as like you know we call them quarters or they're also referred to as primals And then you can take those primals like a front shoulder and then break that down into subprimals. And that's where we get our shank. And then we start to get our femur. And then we have the blade. So there's three pieces to that one primal. Each one of these muscle groups is going to have, based upon the amount of work that it has, the amount of stress that that part of the body has, is going to want to be cooked in a different way. Um, I think, I I think it's the, um, the cattle world will talk about it, that the muscle furthest away from the ground is going to be the most tender. And what they're saying is, is that if anything closer to the hoof is going to be doing the work so that you got your front shoulders, that's supporting a lot of that front end of the animal, it's going to need a longer, uh, it's going to be, need a longer cook. It's going to need a longer time to relax and then you get up into your your back strap and your tenderloins that they don't do a lot of supportive work they kind of just help the animal move only when it needs them to move and so you're going to get a shorter burst of heat to make that um edible or to make that taste really good you're not going to have to do a lot of things to that so it is a 
it is a chart out game and you you get butchers who put together a cut list their professional job is to make a cut list of how am i going to utilize this animal taking that step with your deer and jotting it down on a paper that you click next to you as as much as that seems like a extra step or like oh i i don't need to do that it's amazing how you start cutting and then you blank on oh what was i trying to do again i i had this in mind what was that and you got to go back to your cut sheet in order to do that for the sake of of those ribs that i did i did these individual lollipops um and i had to make sure that if i had a good looking side of ribs to not immediately try to bone it out like i had to keep that in mind hey first good set of ribs you come by take out the whole piece and stick that off to the side because you're going to want to work on that so it is a it is a head game that you got to start with first one of the things that we found and i think my so my brother was super excited you know he ate those ribs over here so he shot a deer he took his in for processing and he said, save me the ribs. And I think he just assumed that that was going to be edible. And his had a giant layer of fat on top of it. Um, and he thinks that that's what was the make or break, um, on whether it was good or not, because we had taken it all the way down to the meat, got basically all of that, fat off of there that we possibly could um when you're when you're looking at fat content silver skin uh you know any of the bloodshot anything like that how are you looking at it when you're trimming out these pieces um yeah bloodshot meat is just not pretty <laughs> it's it, it looks bad. It's going to taste bad because of that blood that's there. Um, you could even have some fragmenting of, you know, you, you bust through a, through a rib. You could have bones in there. It's, it's part of the process is that you're going to have some loss. So when it comes to, you know, you know, shot meat or blood meat, I kind of give, a, you know, I give pretty good room to uh, make sure that I'm not getting any of that in my, in my final cuts. Um, as you're going from those bigger sections down, especially down through the ribs that, you know, if there's, you put it through one of rib and with a bow, you're not going to have necessarily as much, but if I put one, put an arrow through a rib, I'm probably not going to be using that rib or the two right next to it. That's going to be, probably three ribs that are automatically out of whatever cuts I'm trying to do. Um, but yeah, like he wanted those ribs back and you are, you're going to have these globs of fat. You're going to have these waxy, tough, tallowy like fat intertwined along the side of the animal. And that's just another piece to this puzzle that you got to take that apart. There's a couple ways you could deal with it. And one of them is to just go layer by layer. And if you've got one with a large glob of fat, actually go in and slice that out. Um, whether it's, you know, you make one incision to, to fold meat away from the, 
away from the bone in order to then get those knobs out and then lay that, that back in the case of, uh, if ribs or as you guys were doing, as you were cooking your, um, rib sets up from that venison is you go with a long, slow cook. It's going to need a long time to render that fat out. Um, a dish that I do that uses that rendering, like that it needs that rendering is I found where I'm able to make a rib roll where I basically bone out the ribs, but leave the entire meat section of the rib together. From there, I'm able to then come to the backside, slice out big chunks of gnarly fat that it's not going to be good for any any culinary use. You can make suet and then be able to feed the birds with it during the, the winter, but that, that's not where we're going. We're sticking with, with our own, own meals here. So you could take that out, and then I end up rolling it all together and tying it off. The first step of that is then I go into um, the oven, a slow oven, like 300 degrees. I can put a quick sear on it, but then I'm, I want to let that slow oven do the work of melting out that gnarly fat. Because then what I'm left with is I'm left with a leaner piece of meat. Now, it's already cooked, and that's how it's going to come. In the case of those ribs, you had to render out that fat to leave the meat part, the desirable part. Um, but then that I'm, I pull out the meat. That's what I want. And I discard all of that rendered out fat. That's now at the bottom of that pan floating in that moisture or that water that I left in the pan there. So it's more of, you know, you can either cut it out or you just got to find a way to, to manage that fat content. Cause yeah, if you do take a bite of venison fat, it's, it, takes over everything it has a waxy a waxy texture that you know once once you eat it you can't get rid of it you got to have something either really acidic or like straight up black coffee to end up breaking that up paint scraper for the roof of your mouth (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) one of those uh, electric toothbrushes that the only purpose is to, to get fat out of your teeth right so you were talking about the cattle industry and their the way that they were talking about, um, you know, the higher cuts of meat being more relaxed. Um, to that point, are you doing anything with aging? Are you have you delved into that side of it? And have you seen any? If so, have you seen any results in the? I guess the response to venison, I mean, that's what I always look at for venison is people that, that say, well, I don't like venison. I don't like venison. And then you can give them a piece of meat that's venison and they don't even know it or well, vice that, versa. Yeah. That kind of, I was going to get on that point too, is like, sometimes like I know when, when I've cut up deer before and sometimes circumstances, you know, it's warm out, you shoot them early season, you got to get them in a fridge or something and, if you cut them up when they're stiff or in rigor, that's there's definitely I've noticed like a a different taste or whatever. You definitely want to get that out of it. Have you had any you know experiences with that? Yeah, and again, you hit the nail on the head that it's it's situational. 
this year we were given the opportunity to have a little bit colder temperatures uh, during archery season, during shotgun. Um, there's some years where, heck, I'm sweating. I have a T-shirt on now up there, 70 degrees at like 7.30. And if I down a deer, man, it's going to be a ticking time bomb that I got to get that thing taken apart and cooled down. Um, there's a couple different ways to get to aging. And one that I think we're kind of striving for is to be able to, when you get that full animal, you're able to then hang him up or her up and be able to then let that thing sit for a good number of days. Again, situational. If it, you got a, you know, in three days, you got a warm day coming up. Well, I guess it's going to be a, a three day hang. Um, if you've got a longer extended period, you know, you might be able to push it a full week or eight days or 10 days. Um, and that's going to be something that's beneficial to the tenderness of the meat. Uh, what you're basically doing is you're letting the enzymes of that animal break down the tissue that's allowing that muscle to then relax. Um, same sort of process that rigor is going through. Rigor is far more aggressive and you're definitely right. If you start cutting an animal at rigor, you're going to have all kinds of problems. You'll be able to, yeah, run, you'll be able to run that backstrap on your, on your tire and, uh, <laughs> that'll be, yeah, better tread than anything, any good year. Right. Um, yeah. when it hangs, uh, it helps break down the collagen, right? And then. Yeah, Th that's collagen, and then even the, the muscle fibers himself, they begin to loosen because what they are is just basically large bundles of elastic tissue that right now they're, they're tense. And as those enzymes work, they begin to relax and elongate. And that's where then, in the case of rigor, that's when it goes stiff and then it becomes pliable in those next couple days right. and that process can continue to keep happening as that animal is, is hanging there. I've actually, um, I've actually it, it, uh, uh, cut one up and it was warm out and I, uh, put it in my garage fridge, kind of made a little rack and, and my wife was pretty upset about that, but it worked out pretty <laughs> good that way <laughs> just because I had an extra refrigerator, you know, but, I, I feel that every garage should have like that multi-use refrigerator that, yeah, at one day a deer is needed going to end up in here to give it time to relax and to age. So good on you. I know, I know you got in trouble, but I think for the long run, <laughs> you did the right thing. John. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the limits on that? Like, let's say that I want, you say that it's, everything is situational and I, I 100% get that. I mean, Frank has said, you know, he shot a deer the first day of gun season and let it hang until Christmas Day or something like that. And it was the best deer that he's ever eaten. Um, and given the right temperature and circumstances, all of that, um, you know, that's fine. But if you're going to do something like John's talking about there and where, you know, Renella talks about it and you see these other guys that are taking these fridges and they're saying we're going to hang it. um is there a sweet spot in there and that, I don't know, the, the crust that comes on the outside of this? I mean, right. it's the same It's the same thing with with cheeses, right? I mean, like the best cheeses are 
covered in mold if you ever got to see them. Um, but that's the way that they're aged. So is there a sweet spot if you were going to try and hang one yourself or, or something like that, or is it just trial and error? Um, I think it was, and I'm, I'm, I forget her name, but I know her Instagram handle and she's the wild and whole. I forget her name. Anyhow, check her out on Instagram. She's got a great article and talks specifically on that subject of aging venison. And I believe she put together a seven, a 14 and a 24 day age on a piece of meat. Um, I think there was from her article, I believe there was some improvement at like the five day. And then when you get to like the 14 day, there was, more improvement there as far as tenderness and as far as flavor. But then between the 14 and the 24, there wasn't a lot more. There wasn't a lot of change there um, other than, you know, an extra 10 days. But you didn't, I think you had an enriching of flavors at that point. But at the same time, that 14 days seemed to be the pretty economically quick spot to do it. That if you're going to do it, an age like getting to that 14 uh, is going to be a good spot to go to. Uh, beef, for example, they hang 21 days in a cooler before that ever hits a, a cut shop. So it's even though it's a regular steak that you're getting out of the grocery store from beef, it's already got 21 days of hanging age on that. You can go further if you've got the right conditions. And I think that's going to take a little bit of some ingenuity. I'm sure John has something written down on a napkin already <laughs> on where he's going to go with this, but it's, you're going to want to manage moisture. You're going to want to manage temperature and you're going to want to manage airflow. Um, those three keys are going to be critical to adding more age. Cause now you're not necessarily looking at fresh meat at this point, you're going to start stepping into charcuterie. You're going to start stepping into this curing side where you're going to then create a crust on the outside. You can spoil that meat if it crusts up too much because that moisture is now trapped and it can't escape and it's going to begin to break down or it's going to begin to have bacteria. You know, moisture is a, a bad deal when it's put into a locked situation like that. <laughs> The other option that you can go with is if you've already made your cuts, you've already made it down into whole muscles, you can add a wet age. And the wet age is just like a dry age, but now you're inside of a vacked bag. And that's something that the home hunter or the home cook has a little bit more control on. So you got your vac sealer and you vac seal a piece of meat and you throw it in your refrigerator and you keep it in there for a number of days and you're going to get what's called purge. And that's the moisture that comes out of the meat. It's red. It's not necessarily blood. It does have some mitochondria. It does have some, some blood tissue that's in there, but that purge is going to then come out of the meat itself. You can then take it out of that bag, clean it off, put it back in another zip or a, uh, 
another vac bag, seal that up, and give it another period of time now without that purge in it. So during the wet age, you can get around that 14%, or excuse me, those 14 days in a controlled environment like a refrigerator now. It gives you more of that control. It kind of safeguards you against hanging something up without like a fan and a humidifier inside of a curing chamber at that moment. You'd have to put one together. So there's those two routes of wet and dry that you can come up with a balance with. And the wet probably being the the easiest one, you pull it out of your freezer and you stick it in your refrigerator and you just let it sit there for the week. You pull it out, you know, let's say Monday and then Friday, you've added an additional five days to it. You open it up. You're going to get, I w- I'm going to use funk in a positive here <laughs> as opposed to a negative, but you're going to get a burst of like what that cheese is talking about. There's a fermenting there that you rinse off that purge and then you cook up that steak. You're going to get more pronounced venison flavor and you're going to get a tenderness that coming out of something that you just pulled off the side of that animal isn't going to be as good so first of all when despite your thoughts of john writing it down on a napkin he was actually looking it up and it looks like the that uh is danielle pruitt um who you're referring to there you go danielle yep and so uh, you kind of got into it uh there a little bit but so i I guess when i think of aging i think more of the tenderness um so what are the differences in the flavors um, that you were, you were just kind of alluding to? Um, well, everything that domestically is raised on corn. So we've got this fixation on corn flavor. If people are not adapted or open-minded to wild game, the term gamey gets thrown out for anything that doesn't taste like corn. But now we've got a wild animal that's going around and eating, like, like we mentioned earlier, acorns. It's eating woody brows. It's eating anything that's out in the woods. And it's going to taste different than, uh, than beef. It's going to taste different than anything that's raised on corn naturally. But now you're going to be having even regional deer that are going to be even tasting differently a deer over here in barry county is going to taste different because of its environment than it one over in muskegon county where you guys are at the environment's going to be a little different but from that you're going to op- you're going to open that up and it's not going to be i don't, I don't want to say very pronounced um but you're going to have a richer, deeper venison-y uh, taste to it. It's going to be much more pronounced because water's been extracted from that and you're left more with the actual meat. And you, from that meat being basically made from the environment, you're going to get a, a more pungent venison profile. I'm definitely going to try that here coming up. And um, if I get sick, 
I will send you the bill. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've even heard again situational. Right? <laughs> situation. Yeah. Disclaimer: <laughs> Your nose knows. So if you do smell it and it makes you like immediately look to the left, then I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah, how do it. I know good funk from bad <laughs> funk? That's what I'm saying. I think he'll know. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that was a trial and error. I'll, I'll leave that one. But <laughs> well, I've even heard, uh, like, back to Meat Eater, Ranella talk about how, like, his brother Mad, you know, when he kills an elk, you know, in early season or something, and it's hot, he he actually like times out his his meat through the year, so he freezer ages it basically. So it, it's still. You know, you, when you freeze meat, it's still breaking down. It's just at a much, much slower rate. So th- there's even that part of it. I mean, there's so much, there's so many ways to do things. I guess it's just kind of, you know, like you're saying, trial and error. And just, you know, how 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 particular do you want to get with it? Well, between you and I, I think there's a big gap in being particular. <laughs> oh, come on, I'm not particular at all. <laughs> Well, <laughs> Nick, uh, we've kept you here quite some time. We're we're just over an hour here um, as far as the recording time. But I did want to get a couple of your favorite recipes, both uh, for venison and especially um, for turkey, given your uh, prestige in the, 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 the turkey realm. I mean, growing up on a turkey farm, that's got to be you got to have more recipes than anyone else. But what I did want to get into was something kind of odd and maybe something off the wall. And and we had talked about earlier um, some pigeon poppers that you had done from the Super Bowl. So if if you want to get into that a little (laughs) bit, we kind of talked about like what I picture. And if I was good at Photoshop, what I would do is like there's like the pigeon lady in like home alone too who just stands out there in the middle <laughs> yeah. of like central park i would definitely put your face on that and just be <laughs> like that because that's what i think of when i think of a pigeon um so i was trying to figure out how you know a farm boy is like well we're gonna eat these pigeons and this is how we're gonna do it it, it pigeons don't don't resonate with me other than an overpass or, I mean, I guess, you know, growing up, I did see him in the barn, but I saw more morning doves, I think, than pigeons. So <laughs> you kind of yeah. get into that. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was just kind of like a impromptu thing that I got into basically love, you know, shooting pigeons here. Um, off a meat eater episode, we switched over to Netflix and, uh, I came across one of the episodes on there where um, Steve and and one of the guests there were before the opening of morning dove season were out shooting pigeons off the side of these silos at a farm and they were going to end up cooking them up along with the doves. And I just thought that was a really neat thing. I was like, man, that's just a potential there that you've got this, basically critter that's unregulated. It's a, it's a non-native, it's invasive. It's becoming more of a problem than it is a solution to anything. And there's no season or limits on. So there's the, the opportunity there for an opportunistic hunter to take advantage of. Well, sure enough in the feed barn of our, uh, our, our poultry farm here over by the mix mill, 
we had a nice little flock of pigeons that would basically be in there sucking down the turkey feed. And when they sucked down that turkey feed, of course, they relieved themselves everywhere. And it was just becoming a real mess and it needed to be addressed. So a buddy of mine and myself, we ended up waiting by a, a small porthole in the side of the barn there. My father went around and, you know, knocked a few things around, threw a couple sticks at birds up in the rafters. And as soon as they poured out of there, we made it rain a bunch of shots <laughs> and we're able to drop these pigeons. And we just had a riot with it. But picking them up, they do. They've got a nice big breast to them. And it's a deep, rich meat. Uh, so once you've finally plucked this bird out, you can go whole on these pigeons. Uh, issue is, is just you're not getting a lot of return on the the wings and the drums. You could probably get a little more on the thighs. But uh, using those breasts was a, a great way to just finally use a, a pest into something that was like, hey, I could serve this up to people or I could enjoy it myself. Um, but taking that that um, idea of like, well, it's related to a dove and dove poppers are kind of the, the big mainstay on how dove is eaten where it's rolled up in bacon. I marinated the jalapeno and a little bit of citrus, a little bit of lime and some uh, some lemon juice, added a a smear of roasted garlic where I, I basically roasted the whole head of garlic in the oven until it became soft and you could mix it into a, a spread. So I just put a smear of that on the inside, added the breath, added a, a section of the breast and rolled that up in a piece of bacon. And you get the, you get the bacon, the pepper, the garlic, and then just with this rich tasting, um, basically dove breast because it, it is a rock dove. I guess that's its uh, given name. But this pigeon came out and, as a just a real treat, and it's just got my it's just got me salivated for the next time that you know I want to go knock on doors. And as much as I want to say, hey, can I hunt your back forty? Hey, can I hunt your silo over here too? <laughs> clean up, clean up your barnyard. Doing them a service, getting rid of them dirty old. Pigeons. Well, it's kind of like turkey hunting, right? So it's like you get on a property turkey hunting, and then maybe if you get lucky, they'll let you deer hunt. So maybe this is just a new avenue of like approaching hunting properties. Like, you know, knock, knock, knock. Hey, can I hunt your property? Like, no, there's a bunch of guys that are leasing it here and there. Like, no, no, no. I would just want to yeah, kill the pigeons. I'm after your, I'm after your sky rats here. <laughs> can I get to take care of those? <laughs> so, as far as turkeys go, I mean, as far as a wild turkey, I mean, there's definitely a difference between a farm-raised turkey and a wild turkey. Uh, what's, what's your favorite way to prepare wild turkey? I'm gonna, I could end up being like uh, Bubba Gump here and just go on with how many different ways <laughs> to serve up turkey. Um, <laughs> turkey's got a bad rap, and I think it's just from the frozen store-bought birds that have been there a while they you know the quick raised birds they just don't have flavor to them and i think turkey got a bad rap uh for being dry and flavor flavorless it's it's an amazing creature uh they 
they claim to be stupid. They're not stupid at all. I'm sure any uh, any hunter can tell you how wily and how quick the a wild turkey can be. But um, even the the domestic ones, they're they're not to be scoffed at. And as a as approaching it as a as a butcher and and a I guess a, a self taught chef, I'm almost looking at a two different birds. You've got your crown or your breast that's white meat, and then you've got your legs and your thighs that are the dark meat. You're going to want to cook those at different temperatures for different periods of time to get uh, the best result. So here we are traditionally, we're putting a whole bird in the oven and trying to get uh, moist breast, but at the same time, not tough legs. It's, it's kind of almost impossible. Um, you almost have to look at it as, as two different. Um, but with the, with the legs, uh, legs and thighs, I like to, um, brine those. And by brining them, I'm using probably a simple brine. I'm going to be using salt, sugar, uh, brown sugar. I like that molassesy style as opposed to just a white sugar. Um, if I wanted to add a little cure, I'd add a little, um, little pink salt, little Instacure, and probably keep it simple at that. I wouldn't go into the aromatics. I wouldn't go into adding anything else. But give that a couple days, whole leg quarter in the brine. From that, I'm then going to move that over to um, either a smoker or even just an offset on a charcoal grill. Um, I've been doing a lot of offsetting on my, my charcoal grill, which is basically just having a charcoal grill become a smoker. Uh, but just let that go for a long period of time. And as that, as that leg quarter begins to to cook up and begins to relax and um, become soft at that point, I like to slice the thigh uh, and have that as, as large pieces that you'd serve up and then shred the the drumstick um you could go neanderthal and just go ahead and rip on it you do have a lot of sinews that are in there and if you get a bigger bird i mean it, it looks almost like another bone that's in there you're not going to get around it it's that that's how that critter is constructed but if you can shred all that meat off oh it's just like a, a um a shank from venison it's just velvety it's rich and it's real you know rib sticking good so that's how I'd handle my dark meat. Um, my on the breast, there's the inside tenderloin. So if you butterfly off a whole half or a lobe on the one side, there's this muscle that runs on the inside that you can peel away. Um, and here at the turkey farm, we refer to it as a tenderloin. Um, maybe in a different sense than than what uh what a four-legged hooked animal would be. But anyway, that, that's what we refer to as the, the tenderloin. And I like to butterfly that and then marinate it either in a fact bag or like a Ziploc where I get as much air out of it as possible. Um, zesty Italian dressing works out dynamite. That's a good one, especially for that whiter, whiter meat on there. Um, but I just want to hit that with a just quick heat, just enough to make the meat white on the inside that my juices run clear. But having that that piece of tenderloin butterflied open 
and having a, a chance to let a marinade work, you know, a quarter inch on each side, that's just something I would serve to, to anybody. Well, that, that just has my mind racing because, you know, for the, for the listener, well before this podcast ever came to, to be, um, was a collaboration between the Huntivore and uh, our podcast, the Hunter Chronicles podcast up at the Total Archery Challenges that I wanted to get together with Nick. Nick was up there last year and we had been back and forth on Instagram here and there. And I saw this guy that I kind of thought was Nick wandering around out there in the practice course, flinging traditional arrows here, there and everywhere. And uh, <laughs> definitely everywhere. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's gotta be him. And then, then uh, he started up his podcast and we kind of went back and forth. So this year uh, I was like, you know, we need to do something when we go up to the total archery challenge um, as far as like wild game preparations. And, you know, we're going to put the, the hurting on some squirrels and do some, some squirrel preparations up there. Um, but now I'm, I'm thinking with with your history with turkeys, we got to kill. I mean, the goal is to kill a whole bunch of turkeys, but I mean, we usually just breast them out and we've deep fried some of the legs here and there. But I, I think now we need someone to to show us how to do it, right? Absolutely. What about? I mean, how how does that sound to you? If we bring up a couple wild turkeys, you uh, think you can put on a show for us? You know, that's one thing that I am always willing to put on a show. <laughs> and, yeah, let's cook up some wild turkey. You guys going to bring up the whole bird? Are we are we doing full-on bird or are we well, doing the, uh, just pieces and parts here? Well, but that's what – I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking is, like, you know, what do you want us to do is uh, – I mean, we usually just, like – You just breast them out? Well, hey, here's the challenge now. You When you get that bird down on the ground – you are saving both thighs and you are saving both drumsticks and I'll show you what to do on one of them and then I'll let you play with the other. How's that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> it sounds like half the birds we're going to kill. So <laughs> 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 yeah. So, I mean, like I said, we've been, we've been talking about this for a little bit now and, and that's something that I wanted to get into is that, you know, we're, we're going to be up at the total archery challenge and uh, you know, you're going to be up there and we've been trying to put this together as far as, you know, getting people out and kind of showcasing what, what you can do with wild game, but then bringing in anyone who says like, you know, for a guy like me, who's never eaten rabbit or never eaten squirrel or, or something like that um, for uh, someone to know what they're doing and put it in a preparation where it's like, Hey, you know, this is just, I mean, at the auto household, this is everyday fare, but, uh, you know, you can do this with the, the critters that you have running around, even pigeons for that matter. <laughs> so, um, I'm really looking forward, um, to getting together with you, you know, up there with that. And I think it's going to be a great time. And the amount of people that we've met up at the total archery challenge, like just through this, I mean, last year we weren't up there saying like, Oh, we we have a podcast or, or anything like that. But it's like, 
it just kind of always kind of centers back to that. It's like, oh, you were there, you were there, you were there. Um, it's such it's such a great event with an amazing group of people. It's kind of like when we go to the BHA events, like um, w- one of the guys that we met at the Total Archery Challenge last year, but he's like, people don't go to Total Archery or uh, BHA events to be a dick, you know? And it's like the greatest group of people um and i i feel real um it's like like i should have went up and said hey are you nick from the you know from instagram or 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 whatever uh because there's so many great people up there that you interact with and uh, this year i'm really looking forward to you know kind of moving that that forward and kind of kind of seeing you know where we can take this collaboration yeah i I double down with you on that, Adam. There is, I mean, you get eat up there and sure. Some people look intimidated. They got, they're decked out in every piece of high tech equipment or they've got fancy jerseys on and, you know, everybody's still kind of like feeling each other out, but at the heart, like that is a group of people up there that share a passion for either the sport of archery or in a discipline of archery and even in the hunting world that, you know, you, you're going up in the chairlift with, with somebody you've never met. And you're going to have the common interest of, well, hey, did you shoot a deer this year? Like, yeah, let me tell you about it. And, you know, to have that much camaraderie. And I think you see that especially when it gets to the party side of the night on Saturday. I think that's kind of the night we, we've dubbed always party night is that people kind of let loose and hang down and they, they want to talk and chat with people. And so, yeah, right down there at the end of the slope, you've got a lot of people just sharing ideas and becoming a community. And I think as hunters and especially as people like utilizing, um, utilizing our game is that that's a great place to network because I'm going to have some good ideas, but I don't have it all figured out. I I haven't written the complete guide to anything. And for me to then talk to somebody else, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is how we've been doing our our squirrels. And it's like it could be mind-blowing to me. I've never heard of that before. And then to take that back and be able to then provide that for my own friends and family is just a, an amazing thing that as as a group of people, if we can continue to uh, work together to not only be – cordial with each other or just help out each other but at the same time it allows us to be open to people who are looking in we you know you get people who are asking questions about hunting or may not even be favorable about hunting but they see us talking about how we're using our creatures and that becomes the talking point well i'm i can tell you this like it's something that we look forward to every year and like i say this year more so than any other year, I think, because, you know, we're going up there with a plan to, to meet up with you, sit there and cook up all of this. I don't want to say like exotic food or anything like that, but just to be able to see it exactly like you said, like in a different light that may be like mind blowing where, you know, where just like the ribs, it may end up being like, I can't believe we've been so wasteful 
you know, for, for, for not doing it this way. And then all the other people that we've met and, you know, the people that we've yet to meet up there, I mean, it's just such a great event. So we're, we're certainly looking forward forward to it and, and can't wait to, you know, get up there and we'll probably record another podcast with you up there and, and kind of, uh, recap the weekend. Um, but I just want to say thanks for, you know, coming on, you know, you came on here short notice. I just contacted you today. We had, you know, with this bad weather, um, uh, the guys that were going to come over, they weren't going to drive in a blizzard and I, I don't blame them one bit. Um, and we look forward to talking to them in the future, but it's just a matter of, you know, I, I just really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Um, so how can everybody follow along with everything that you're doing? And, and maybe if you've got anything coming up, you know, we'll go ahead and let us know what we can expect out of the hunt of work here going forward. Yeah. And yeah, thanks for the, it was a quick notice, but thank you so much for the opportunity to come on. Cause yeah, I've been, I've been chomping at the bit to, to talk about this and it's, it, it just gets me all excited. Um, to, to find us at Huntivore, we're on Instagram and Facebook. I believe Facebook, we are just the Huntivore. Um, and you can find us there. We are, uh, Huntivore podcast, or are we just, if, anyway, if you search Huntivore on Instagram, you'll find our, our page there as well. And we do a lot. Um, we try to post things, um, weekly. It, we try to, things that we find are working for us. And we'll even occasionally do the one where it's like, yep, this was a bad idea. Don't do this. Um, but we're, we're on there a bunch. Um, and you mentioned earlier that, yeah, we joined the sportsman's nation, which is a great opportunity. Um, it's just a collection of podcasts and bloggers that share, uh, the excitement for hunting and fishing. And they're as passionate about, their outdoor lifestyle as, as I am about mine. Um, so it's been an awesome to be a part of that group. Um, so you can go to sportsmannation.com. Uh, you can find our podcast, um, there and you can also, uh, check out the other ones that are there as well. I know, um, nine finger chronicles is, um, Dan Johnson, and he's one that I've been going back and forth with. He's got, um, gear reviews. He's got, hunting stories. It's a, it's a great one to follow. Um, but yeah, we're there at sportsman's nation and we're also on Instagram and, uh, Facebook. A new ad is I'm going to try my hand at some writing. I'm going to try to put together some, uh, blog posts. We're going to try to write out some recipes. Um, I've got, uh, Dustin, he's my, he's been upgraded to my chief editor. So it's going to like, he's going to have a second full-time job because he's going to have to take over my English language. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to try and get some written content out there. And uh, that way, you know, if we get a home run recipe that we've been working on, you know, maybe, maybe Huntivore Pigeon Poppers is going to be, uh, be up there soon. Sweet. Well, with that said, this is, you know, the Bow Hunting Chronicles podcast. And I normally ask this question. So what, what is the, bow and your setup right now quick just a quick breakdown of what you're shooting for archery gotcha um i am shooting a michigan made g5 quest uh forge pulling uh i'm pulling 70 pounds my arrow construction currently is a fmj with 75 grains of brass up front 
and 125 grain head there running three fletch blazers on the back. Right. Um, and then my, my set that I've really been trying to get better at is my bear paw slick stick. It's a reflex defects longbow pulling 45 pounds at 28 inches. Uh, I'm a short guy with short arms, so I think my draw length is only around 26 or 27 on it. Um, but I'm shooting uh, carbon arrows out of that one with 125 up front, 5-inch feathers on the back. And what's your go-to broadhead? I've gone single bevel. Um, got two that I'm running right now. Fixed blade, single bevel. First one is the Dirt Nap DRTs. Really like that. And then I switched over this year to do a 125-grain bone broadhead. Bright red. I think it's uh I think I think the red adds some feet per second. <laughs> <laughs> Those bone broadheads are pretty badass in the the angle that they have, not the the bevel angle, but the actual like width of the broadhead, like that angle is pretty like it's pretty wide. Uh those are pretty awesome broadheads, but I can tell you this that those uh dirt nap DRTs are, we're we're going to be using the dirt nap shredders, shredders um, the turkey. for for turkeys. There's a, the turkey head, and the guys over at Dirt Nap are probably some of the coolest guys that you're ever going to like run into. Um, so I'm I'm pretty excited to be using those. So that's it's nice to hear you know that that, that that's what you're using. Those guys are awesome, and that's a, it's a great broadhead. That new Alpha uh, stainless steel that came out is pretty. That and they have one that's like bright green too. So yeah, 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 yeah John with the the whole Dudley thing. He's got a neon green. Yeah, he's got to have the he's got to have the lime green going. <laughs> with him. So, but yeah, I I love both those heads. Um, you know, I I switched. I had a bad experience with a, a mechanical. I'm not even going to mention it. Um, but it, yeah, I hit shoulder and just woe was me and felt bad for the critter kept me up for a couple nights and i was like i just vowed to myself i just i'm not gonna do that again i'm not gonna i'm not gonna if if i mess up i want to still be able to be lethal if i hit that shoulder and so that's where i started exploring um kind of the, the fixed blades again and looking at the single bevel and then i getting into the traditional side about it i heard about this dr ed ashby and man i I drank that Kool-Aid deep and I really wanted to see if I couldn't get more front of center weight, couldn't get a heavier arrow, more front of center, um, and use that single bevel and true to that Testament using that bone broadhead. Uh, here's my quick testimony. on it. I guess, uh, deer that I got this year, um, spike buck year and a half old. He walked out, he saw me up in the tree, started stomping his foot. So it's like, buddy, you, you earned this arrow, <laughs> sent it at him at 20 yards. And sure enough, it was going to go a little far forward. He ran 20 yards, tipped over, end of story. When I'm taking him out, I want to make sure, or when I'm uh, butchering him out, I, I kind of retrace the, the steps of the arrow to see where I hit. And sure enough, I hit shoulder. But I was able to put that whole uh, broadhead and shaft through that 
that shoulder. Um, I think just with the added weight and the, the design there. So yeah, true testament to them that you can, you can, you can shoot bone with a bone and end up with an animal. Well, that's awesome. And I think, you know, my experience this year with the tooth of the arrow was similar. I mean, one perfect shot, I mean, picture perfect shot. And the other was probably not your, your normal normal for you it's yeah well i like shoot him in the neck but um <laughs> it's just kind of commonplace but it's it's not you know where you're supposed to shoot him and between the two they didn't go a hundred yards and i i i can't say that with a different broadhead the results would have been different but i can't say that it, that they would have been the same but shooting fixed blades it is somewhat that added peace of mind. And the flip side of that is that, well, the added peace of mind with the mechanical is that you have this larger cutting diameter and, and whatever, but those, there's no loss in kinetic energy with a, a fixed blade. And then at the same time, you know, you're shooting a single bevel, so it's designed to just destroy whatever it, right. it hits. Yeah. You're using that mechanical advantage that, not only is it trying to push itself through, but as it twists, it's opening up that uh, that wound channel or it's opening up that bone to allow the arrow to slide through. Yeah, I I bought I bit that hook line and sinker, and but it's paid out dividends. I can't I can't argue science. I guess. I mean, I just think of it as a hatchet through a shank. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of the same principle. Hey, it doesn't have to be pretty. The job's just got to be done. You right. know. <laughs> but I think with that, Nick, I really appreciate having you on here. I think that's kind of uh, all we've got for this evening, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing what you have uh, coming up here uh, in the future. So. Awesome, guys. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, hey, folks out there, keep your knives sharp. <laughs> Good talk. See you.